Welcome to Psychocinematic's bonus episode for International Day of People with Disability. Today it will just be me talking at you for a while, which is awkward for me, but what is a podcast if not awkward? Today I'll be focusing on the amazing documentary Crip Camp, which was directed by Nicole Newnham and James Lebrecht. Fun fact, Barack and Michelle Obama serve as executive producers of the film. It was released in March 2020 on Netflix and received an Academy Award nomination for Best Documentary Feature, which lost out to My Octopus Teacher, annoyingly. I watched it on the couch heavily pregnant just as COVID struck, and while I cried at most movies in my third trimester of pregnancy, I cried a lot in this one. Now we are a podcast about fiction movies and TV series, and I've made a point not to cover documentary films or biopics based on real people. And that's because critiquing a depiction is not only pretty inappropriate and potentially mean when it's about a real person with a real experience of mental illness or disability, but I also just don't want to get sued. But I'm going to make an exception for this film. Not only because it's amazing and wonderful, and I pretty much have nothing bad to say about it, but I feel like it's one of those films every single person in the world should see. It's a film that really brings to light some of the forgotten fights that have gone on in history for disability equality in the US in the 70s. One which barely gets mentioned in history lessons, even when discussing the civil rights movement which was going on at the time. I only knew about it after listening to an episode of Factually with Adam Conover, during which he interviews Judy Human about the disability rights movement. It was absolutely fascinating, and I just couldn't believe, even after working in disability-focused organisations for over 10 years, that I had no idea about it. Two good podcasts you should listen to is The Human Perspective by Judy Human, and of course, Factually with Adam Conover. Although, I'd love it if you changed the theme music to something a little bit less abrasive. Thank you. So let's move on to the history of the film. The idea to make the film about Camp Jenid started with an offhand comment at lunch. So James Lebrecht had worked with Nicole Newnham for 15 years as a co-director, and Lebrecht was born with spina bifida and uses a wheelchair to get around. However, he'd never seen a documentary related to his life as a disability rights advocate. He was having lunch with Nicole and said, you know, I've always wanted to see a film made about my summer camp. And she replied with, oh, that's nice. Why? And then, as Nicole said, he completely blew my mind, explaining why he wanted to make the film. As she told The Guardian, what Jim and her always felt is that they wanted the film to bring people into the world of Camp Jened, to give them the experience themselves. The whole camp experience, arriving at camp, checking out, feeling a little uncomfortable, not, not knowing anyone, not sure where their role is. And then over time, they come to feel like this is a world that is fun and joyous and liberating for them as viewers, just like it was for Jim. So let's talk about the history of the camp itself. In 1951, Camp Jened was established at the foot of the Hunter Mountain in the Catskill Mountains as a camp for disabled children, teenagers and adults. The camp was meant to be a community environment for people with lots of different disabilities, particularly polio and cerebral palsy. Camp sessions were usually four to eight weeks. And in the 50s, the camp followed a pretty traditional summer camp structure. It was partially funded and supported by the Jened Foundation, which is a parent-led foundation that organised fundraisers. Counselors were usually college students who had been recruited for summer jobs. When you watch the movie, it starts off with Jim Lebrecht, who's the director and producer of the film, as I mentioned, and his story as he discovered the camp. It's also told from the perspective of the counselors that work there, 
who are quite candid in the descriptions of their nervousness before they arrived. It becomes quite obvious straight away, though, that this is not an inspiration porn story. This isn't a story of people with disabilities overcoming obstacles to do the impossible, or having a long battle that leads to tragedy, or how they touched everyone's lives, or anything like that. None of the tropes we've come across while doing this podcast. It's the story of an often maligned minority who find a home and a community where they literally are the same as everyone else, and they do everything on the same basis as everyone else. And how the experiences and connections at the camp led them to get some shit done so they could have some basic human rights in the rest of the world. What really struck me when watching the amazing archival footage and the descriptions by the campers is that Camp Jeanette is essentially the world that we need to be completely inclusive. It's described by the campers as a utopia, where there are no barriers like there are in the outside world. They also describe that at home, at school, or in institutions or programs, there's a hierarchy of disability, where usually polio is at the top and cerebral palsy is at the bottom, depending on your ability levels, it sounds. But at Jeanette, there's no hierarchy. Everyone was supporting each other, including the counsellors and the campers. As one of the counsellors described the personal care routines where everyone would pitch in to help shower people together, it really highlighted how the camp didn't have a system where one person gave and one received. Everyone pitched in together based on what they could offer and their skill set. It's almost a perfect socialist utopia. Everyone had equal footing and everyone had the opportunity to access and participate. A quote from the film is, everyone had a go, you had to bat. For example, if they were playing baseball, it took me three goes to figure out what Americans play with a bat. (laughs) If you couldn't hit it, you were out. And as you see in the footage, accommodations are made for every person's ability level, playing sport, going for a swim, interacting with other campers. No one misses out. The point of humour early on, but also uniqueness, is when Jim mentions that when someone told him about Camp Jeanette, he'd probably smoke weed with the counsellors, and he said, sign me up. Obviously, this camp existed through the 60s and the 70s, where I assume that was pretty part and parcel. But thinking about that in the world I've lived through so far, the idea of offering recreational drugs to someone with a disability is kind of mind-blowing. But why shouldn't they have that experience like every other teenager? At the camp, they were literally given the same experience as every other youth their age, where no one else would, including dating experiences. Judy Human mentioned that she would never date outside of Camp Jeanette. Many long-lasting romances started at the camp, including the cutest couple, Denise and Neil Jacobson. They even got the experience of an outbreak of crabs in the camp, which is a rite of passage they probably wouldn't have had the chance to access otherwise. The most powerful scene for me was something I don't think I've ever seen in the many years I've worked in disability. Counselors and campers surround a table and have an in-depth discussion about some of the issues and challenges they face, particularly around the right to their own privacy at home. Literally, everyone with all different means of communication contribute to this discussion. No one is rushed, no one is spoken over, and when it's tricky to understand someone, no one interrupts or is tempted to stop the conversation. Everyone listens and everyone is given the space to talk. Every voice is heard and respected as an important inclusion. During one discussion, when everyone is talking about something they appreciate about each other, 
A counsellor reminds them, remember you're speaking to her, not about her. It sounds small, but in all my years as a psychologist, the amount of times a person in the same room as me is spoken about and not to is huge. <laughs> so to see this in the 70s, it, it was kind of mind-blowing and it makes, you know, it makes me feel a lot of shame for the fact that we're not much further from, like we're not even close to, to that sort of experience for people with disabilities in places that support them or are supposed to support them. It's this meeting of minds which in 2021 still needs a cultural shift in order to happen across the board. And they were doing it beautifully in the 70s, not because someone came in and said, do it this way, but because any other way of doing it would have been bizarre and incomprehensible. It just sucks that the voices of disabled people being in the centre of any conversation about them is not the norm. It really angers me, and I recognise that I am contributing to that through this podcast. And for that, I apologise. But of course, the utopia of Camp Jeanette could not last forever. And as campers and counsellors went home, they were placed back into the reality that they cannot be themselves like they were at camp. Back in survival mode, where behaviour that is expected and normal at the camp is shameful and considered disrespectful outside. So hypervigilance is essential. Which comes back to a common theme that I come across often in my research journey of inclusivity, that often with disability, we're also likely to have trauma. As Eric Michael Garcia says, we don't know autism, we only know autism with trauma. Because so often it's the people with disability who have to shift themselves, shift their core to fit into the world, not the other way around. It's not the world shifting for them. And that creates the problems that need to be solved. Which leads to another very important quote in the film. We realise that the problem did not exist with people with disabilities. The problem existed with people that didn't have disabilities. It was our problem. And that's Larry Allison, Camp Jeanette's director. At this point, the documentary pivots, away from the ideals and wonderful empowerment of the camp, to the barriers and discrimination that each and every camper faced when they left Jeanette. We hear about the reality of institutions that some of the campers went to, which aren't really much of a far cry from the original institutions in the 1800s. A great podcast episode about that. FYI, is the latest Just the Gist episode where Rosie Waterland and Jacob Stanley talk about Nellie Bly, the first female investigative reporter who discovered the horrendous conditions of one of the institutions of the 1880s. Also listen to our episode on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest versus Ratchet, if you haven't already. We hear Judy Human talk about how she wasn't allowed to go to the mainstream school because she was considered a fire hazard. And she was segregated with other disabled kids into a special education class in the basement, which absolutely did not cater to people's specific needs. We learn about how when Denise Jacobson had abdominal pain from an STI, she had a perfectly healthy appendix removed because the doctor would not believe that she could have possibly have had sex. Whew. We also learn about the different levels of privilege people have in the disability community. For example, Jim, the director, went to a mainstream school, so he recognised that he was privileged compared to some of the other campers. In Jeanette, he was seen as the cool kid, 
where he was the uncool kid at school. The campers who came from a local horribly run institution tended to eat so much that they threw up, and they were the kids that didn't have the same level of privilege as others. But rather than dividing everyone, as they do in the outside, at Camp Jeanette they worked together. Everyone was in the same family and seen as equally valuable. At this point in the film, we see that some of the campers start to advocate for their rights on the back of the civil rights movement. And I just want to talk a little bit more about Judy Human, who is a bloody queen and my friggin' hero. <laughs> so Judy began making moves towards rights for people with disabilities while attending Long Island University. She organized rallies and protests with other students, demanding access to her classrooms by ramps and the right to live in a dorm. She also studied speech therapy at uni. Unfortunately, in 1970, Judy was denied her New York teaching license because the board did not believe she could get herself or her students out of the building in case of a fire. And guess what? She sued the Board of Education on the basis of discrimination. A local newspaper ran a headline of, You can be president, not teacher, with polio. <laughs> Which is amazing. The case settled without a trial, and Judy became the first wheelchair user to teach in New York City. She taught elementary school there for three years. Judy Human and several friends founded Disability in Action, or DIA, an organisation that focused on securing the protection of people with disabilities under civil rights laws through political protest. And this is just how of her time Judy was. It was originally called Handicapped in Action, but Judy didn't like that name and lobbied to change it. She was like one of the first people to be like, hey, well, probably not the first, but in my head, hey, disability isn't a dirty word. Let's not like dance around it and say things like handicapped. Another really prominent disability activist who went to Camp Jeanette, Ed Roberts, asked Judy to move to California to work for the Center for Independent Living, where she served as the deputy director from 1975 to 1982. The catch cry for Center for Independent Living was by disabled people for disabled people. So she was an early adopter of the independent living movement. I think you can see why I love her. Through her work, Judy was responsible for the implementation of legislation at the national level for programs in special education, disability research, vocational rehabilitation and independent living, serving more than 8 million youths and adults with disabilities. So then came the biggest protest of the DIA group, which you see in the film. So a little backstory. The Rehabilitation Act of 1973 was being drafted and the first versions were vetoed by President Richard Nixon in October 1972 and March 1973. The Rehabilitation Act meant that any facility or organisation who received federal money was not able to discriminate on the basis of ability. But of course, Nixon thought, oh, it'll cost too much money to make buildings accessible. So he was like, nah. At this time, the DIA demonstrated in New York City with a sit-in protesting one of the vetoes. Led by Queen Judy, 80 activists staged this sit-in on Madison Avenue, lying and sitting on the street, stopping traffic in Madison Avenue. So in 1977, the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 was again being reviewed, particularly Section 504, which is the part relating to discrimination of people with disabilities. 
Joseph Califano was the US Secretary of Health, Education and Welfare and was refusing to sign the meaningful regulations for that section. So after Joseph's refusal, the DIA had another massive sit-in in the actual Health, Education and Welfare building. Califano issued orders that no meals or medication would be allowed in the building to f- try to force them out. They cut off the phones and the hot water, but still the protesters stayed. The deaf protesters signed out the window in order to get messages out to get supplies, etc. The protesters also got support from the Delancey Street Foundation, the Salvation Army, the Gay Men's Butterfly Brigade, the Glide Memorial Church, and the United Farm Workers who all agreed to bring them food, including the Black Panther Party. One of the protesters called the Black Panthers to support the protesters with meals, and the Black Panthers did so for the duration of the sit-in. Demonstrations continued, as well as other ones in 10 US cities, for 28 days, from April 5th, which is the day after my birthday, until May 4th, 1977. There was about 125 to 150 people refusing to leave, and it is the longest sit-in at a federal building to date. It was interesting in the movie seeing the footage and hearing about the meetings and connections that were made there. They would not begin a meeting until a signing interpreter was there. Something that maybe Australia should try. People in the doco shared that they also began to learn about hidden disabilities such as epilepsy and arthritis, and how hard it was not having medical access and personal access. The sit-in really depicts the barriers that people with disabilities had to overcome, not just within the legislation, but just in order to show up and protest. There was no ramp to the train station to get to the protest, but they still got there. While at the Department of Health building, their equipment and tools weren't there in their usual environment, they still stayed. They describe in the documentary how they had to ensure people were sort of on guard to turn quadriplegics to prevent bed sores as they slept. And still they stayed. I expect many of the politicians poo-pooed the protest and didn't give it as much weight, expecting them to just give up. Because of course disabled people weren't seen as valid whole humans with legitimacy. And they really underestimated them as a result. It's important to know too, local media ignored the entire event until... Day 22, where they finally got some press because of a couple of strikes that were going on at the time. And we also hear from a journalist with a disability herself. Finally, after 28 days, Joseph Califano signed both sections, Education of All Handicapped Children and Section 504, on April 28, 1977. There's a really great scene after the protest where a reporter is in interviewing Judy Human in the 1980s, I believe, and he says, are you still as upset and angry as you were then? And it just made me screech, fuck you! What a gaslighting prick of a question. Also, doesn't help he was a man talking to a woman. Which leads to the fact of all of this hard work and protest. Even though it was a win and a victory for disabled people, Although, you know, they really had to put themselves through the ringer for it. And it's a victory for everyone because disability does not discriminate. It was really a drop in the ocean of all the change that needed and needs to happen. They share that not everyone complied with the Act. And private businesses weren't subject to the Act. 
so they were free to discriminate as they please. There, of course, were many more protests to occur, including the steps of the Capitol building in 1990 for the America with Disabilities Act. There is still a long, long, long way to go in making the world an accessible place. I've had arguments with people online and offline who believe that ableism isn't that rampant. Things are pretty much accessible. But we know this is bullshit. As I've said many times, if you're a wheelchair user and you're in the city and you want to get from A to B, you have to plan it so meticulously. If the lift to the train station is broken in Melbourne Central Station, which is often, you either walk a long, long, long way to find the train platform or you just don't get your train home. How is that okay? So many music venues are not accessible which is what organisations like Bandmates aim to change. But even they are reliant on funding every year, unsure if they're going to get it. Even in a government organisation, we are constantly advocating for things to be accessible to all abilities. Even during COVID, anti-vaxxers fight for their right to not have two small pricks enter their bodies, then protect the health of immunocompromised vulnerable people to make sure COVID doesn't kill them. And before I get on my soapbox, the anti-vaxxer fight, especially those that believe good health doesn't need to require vaccines or any other medical intervention, is peak ableism. I'll get off that soapbox. But discrimination of people with disabilities is a constant, and it's still on people with disabilities to make people accountable and tell people, hey, can you please include captions, thanks, because no one thinks that accessibility should be a given. And that sucks balls. Judy summed up the fight in the movie by saying, I'm very tired of being thankful for accessible toilets. If I have to be thankful for that, when will I ever be equal in the community? On that note too, one last thing Judy and other campers mention is that, quote, if you don't demand what you believe you deserve, you're not going to get it. And another quote, if you're handicapped and you happen to have a passive nature about you, you're really screwed. And while the gumption of these people with disabilities is really something to admire, it really speaks to the other side of ableism, where if you're disabled, to succeed, society expects you to be bigger and better than just normal. You need to make up for your disability by being powerful, determined, demanding, extroverted, make bigger space in the room for yourself, make a big noise. Not because your disability is a negative thing, but because society sees it that way. You basically have to make noise, otherwise you're invisible. But while doing that helps things change, because change only really happens through those kind of loud, <laughs> attention-seeking behaviours and determination. And it did help things change. It also means it puts a lot of pressure on those who just want to get on with it. It's a complex area that we have come across in Me Before You, where we talk about the trope where if you're disabled, you're supposed to automatically become prideful. And there are so many tropes of someone disabled also having a superpower. And it's not Judy and the other Jeanette Camper's fault that this is a trope. It's absolutely society's fault. And it's activists such as Judy that have to sort of pick up the gauntlet for everybody else.
But you know what? I'm going to stop talking about disability while also being someone who does not identify as disabled myself. Although my anxiety can be pretty disabling at times. I don't want this podcast to be another able-bodied person speaking for the disabled community. And while it's still a small struggling baby, my goal next year is to have guests host on the pod who identify as disabled when we feature movies about disability. It might take a bit of work because it is extremely amateur, but please keep that in mind if you're listening and are interested. But in the meantime, I want to highlight to you just a couple of all the amazing disabled advocates and activists that I draw from constantly. I'm obviously focusing more on Australians, but I'll be shouting out more and more disabled content creators on my social media for International Day of People with Disability. Obviously, Judy Human is a goddess, and she also has her own podcast, which you really need to check out, The Human Perspective. Also, because I kind of left it at the 504 sit-in, let me just cast my eye over her other achievements. Human co-founded the World Institute on Disability with Ed Roberts and Joan Leon in 1983, and she was co-director until 1993. Human was appointed as the first director for the Department on Disability Services in the District of Columbia, where she was responsible for the Developmental Disability Administration and the Rehabilitation Services Administration. And Human served in the Clinton administration as Assistant Secretary of the Office of Special Education and Rehabilitation Services at the U.S. Department of Education from 1993 to 2001. She also served as the World Bank Group's first advisor on disability and development from 2002 to 2006. So she's worked to do advocacy around the world. She also became the special advisor on international disability rights for the US State Department, appointed by President Obama. She was the first to hold this role and served from 2010 to 2017. And you know what happened in 2017, guys. She left her post with the change of new administration, as Wikipedia calls it. I just get mad. I just get so mad that the world could go so backwards so quickly. (laughs) But she didn't stop working, of course. From 2017 to 2019, Human was a senior fellow at the Ford Foundation, uh, promoting the intentional inclusion of disability in the foundation's work. And she also wrote a book in February 2020, which I need to read immediately. I'm just looking at her achievements. There's so many prominent women that we celebrate. I feel like she's not up there with the others. She doesn't get as much of a platform, which is highlighted by the fact that I shared a story atting her in her podcast and she freaking messaged me back. Like she's up there with Ruth Bader Ginsburg She shouldn't have time to do that. Anyway, so let me just highlight a couple of Australian activists as well. Jordan Steeljohn is someone you should all look out for and know about. He is currently the senator for Western Australia, um, a Green senator, and he was first elected in 2017 also re-elected for the Senate in 2019. He serviced a lot of areas in the Parliament, 
But namely, he is the Australian Greens spokesperson for disability rights and services, trade, youth, peace, disarmament and veterans affairs, which he's continued to be since 2019. He was born in Northampton, England, and he moved to Australia with his family, studied at Macquarie University, and he won the One Young World Global Youth Politician of the Year in 2018 and the McKinnon Prize for Emerging Political Leadership in 2019. A really great podcast you should listen to is Peter Hook's podcast, I Can't Stand. And in her latest episode, she has an excellent chat with Jordan Steelejohn. Secondly, I want to focus on another queen of Australia, Carly Finlay. Carly is a writer, a speaker and appearance activist. She works part-time as Melbourne Fringe's Access and Inclusion Coordinator. And she recently edited Growing Up Disabled in Australia with Black Ink Books, of which Jordan also has a segment. It's an excellent read. I'm still reading it because I am terrible at reading at the moment, but there's so many amazing stories in there. She writes on disability and appearance diversity issues for news outlets, including CNN, The ABC, The Age, Sydney Morning Herald and SBS. She was named as one of Australia's most influential women in the 2014 Australian Financial Review and Westpac 100 Women of Influence Awards. She organised the history-making Access to Fashion, which was a Melbourne Fashion Week event featuring disabled models. Her Instagram is amazing and has given me so much information and linked me into so many other disabled activists that I draw so much information from. She also has amazing fashion and everything she wears is incredible. There are so many others such as Peter Hook, who I mentioned before, Dylan Alcott, who if you know sports, you would already be familiar with, Hannah Divany, Wheelchair Rapunzel on Instagram, Alice Wong, And I'll mention many, many more of them if you follow me on Instagram. But I really want to leave you with with the first activist who really made a permanent mark on me, Stella Young. Stella Young was a journalist, comedian, and a huge disability activist who worked at the ABC. She hosted Channel 31's TV show No Limits and sat at numerous disability advisory boards in Victoria. I probably first saw Stella on Q&A at one time or another, back when I watched Q&A. But my biggest memory was sitting in my first job as a psychologist at Disability Services, reading all of the articles on Ramp Up, which is the ABC's online magazine she was editor of. Carly Finlay also featured on there quite a bit. Ramp Up was wonderful, insightful, and hugely educational, especially for a freshly baked psychologist wanting to make change in the world. It gave me, and any reader, a continuous explanation of what this social model of disability is all about and the kind of barriers that disabled people are facing daily from transport accessibility to education to the cost of wheelchairs to representation in film. It was written for the disabled community by the disabled community and was an important conduit of information just as the NDIS was starting to form. It lasted three and a half years and I was so disappointed in its closure. Who knows why they decided to end it? But it's really disheartening. Stella sadly died in 2014, not long after her infamous TED talk about how disabled people do not want to be your inspiration, thanks very much, and made the term inspiration porn common diction. She was extremely cool and I really miss her.
that's kind of it for my rant today. If you haven't seen or heard of or read or watched any of the activist work that I mentioned today, do yourself a huge favor and seek them all out through the links in the show notes. Consider this your celebratory activity for International Day of Persons with a Disability. Watch Crip Camp, if you haven't already, and tell everyone you know to watch it too. And have a great dang day. Thanks for listening. Catch you later.